Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. This is Chris, and in this episode, I have a, a moderately long but interesting interview with the infamous Stephen Wolfram. I, I did this interview at the Collision Conference in New Orleans. There was quite a bit of background noise. I've tried to clean up as much as possible, but persevere. It's an interesting interview with one of the fascinating stalwarts of the computing industry. So please enjoy. A lot of people have heard of one particular Wolfram product, so maybe let's kick off with who you are and what Wolfram is as a collective. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I started the company 32 years ago, yeah. and we've kind of had a, a single vision all that time, which is pretty cool in the tech industry, because most people don't get to yeah. be building a technology stack consistently for 32 years, yeah. so to speak. And <laughs> the, the kind of the core of what we've done is this thing we now call Wolfram Language, and it kind of the, the most visible pieces of that were Mathematica, which came out in 1988, um, and uh, Wolfram Alpha, which came out in 2009. So, uh, Did that I I see that thing that has been quite old by now, but yeah, I suppose. (laughs) Right. I mean, so, so kind of the, the, uh, and our products, I mean, Mathematica is primarily used in the R&D sector and in education. So most major universities have site licenses for it and things. It's been used for all kinds of interesting inventions and discoveries over the years. Then Wolfram Alpha uh, is used by, well, a decent fraction of the students of the world as well as lots of professionals and so on. And it's, you know, it's a kind of a drive-by computation system where you're just typing in natural language and, you know, you get get answers. Um, There's a... uh, So... There's actually a branch of the Wolf Malfa business, which is the enterprise Wolf Malfa business, um, which is something that has been growing rapidly, although it's probably we're going to end up spinning it off in some way because it's really not that central to what a lot of what we're doing, but it has to do with building versions of Wolf Malfa customized to large companies dealing with answering questions about their internal data as well as questions about the world in general. Um, So... The, uh, the Wolfram language, the big idea there is something crazy that nobody else has done, which is, uh, you know, build a language where you build in as much as possible about knowledge, about computation, and about the world and data and so on as, as, as you can. And uh, that's, you know, my goal is to sort of make it as automatic as possible for if you can conceptualize something computationally, then my job as a language designer is to get it so that you can take those thoughts and as automatically as possible actually create you know, a program that makes use of that. And I think the um, sort of I view it as being kind of this, this layer of computational intelligence that we are trying to uh, make increasingly ubiquitous in the world. And actually, I think there'll be some things in the, in the next uh, probably six months or a year where we're helping to sort of add to that ubiquity. I mean, the, the, you know, the thing that's happened, our stuff has been widely used, as I've mentioned, in, in R&D and in education. It has, until recently, not been widely deployable in enterprise settings and in production settings. We've changed that over the last, I don't know, eight years or so. We've been working on building out cloud infrastructure, embedded infrastructure, and so on, and that's now really quite well developed. And it's, you know, our stuff is getting used in a bunch of production settings at large companies and so on. And that, uh, so, you know, the, what does it look like? You know, you're, you're writing Wolfram language code, yep. which is very high-level code, 
Um, it's fun for me that I can see that, you know, the world's fanciest R&D folk are writing the same code as, you know, middle school students can write, yeah. so to speak. That's, yeah. I think that's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, it's also fun when developers say, oh my gosh, it's so hard to learn all this stuff. And I know all these like 12 year olds who know how to write this code. And it's, too, it's, the, it's too simple for <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I think, I think there's a certain sense in which people say, you know, it's not code unless, you know, it, I mean, what's happened in the, in the world of programming languages is that there's an awful lot of, I mean, there's some nice designs and so on, but, you know, fundamentally the concept of programming languages has changed rather little yeah. in a very long time. Yeah. It's basically been... Object-oriented is probably one of the last big kind of... Yeah, but I mean, yeah, right. But I mean, I think the point has been that, you know, what is a programming language? What is the point of a programming language? I mean, people see it as being, okay, you're going to, def you know, the computer has certain operations that it does. We're going to specify what sequence of those operations it does, and then we're going to provide a lot of kind of uh, uh, superstructure support of, you know, how to organize a large program, those kinds of things. And that's what a lot of the distinctions between programming languages have to do with that. You know, my goal has been something very different, which is, uh, don't you know build the small programming language that's sort of wrapped around the specific operations a computer can intrinsically do but rather build a large programming language where we go to a lot of effort to maintain design consistency over a long period of time and I'm, I'm kind of proud of the fact that you know you can take a, a Mathematica version 1 yeah. program and I'd actually like to in. dig into that because you mentioned yeah. that in your talk yesterday you, you claim I don't know if you claim 100% but you claim backward compatibility to version pretty much one. Zero, version one. Not not before version one. I wouldn't claim before <laughs> version one. Which is pretty amazing. You know, most 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 products struggle to the last version. The last yes. So and then I guess with all the constant changes and trends in developing applications, uh, how how have we managed to do that? How many times have we really rewritten everything? Or has it always okay, just so, been? So yeah. what we've been okay, so there's different things. So there's the, the code base I don't know, Wolfram Language is probably now yeah. 50 million lines of mostly Wolfram Language code, and then Wolfram Alpha is another 15 million lines, and then there's God knows how many tens of terabytes of data and so on that go with all of this. Um, the uh, uh, We've been very consistently able to just build, 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 build. Our major components, I mean, I'm kind of... I'm actually upset with this code of mine that's still in the system from back in 1987 and so on. Okay. <laughs> um, some which I'm told works just fine, so nobody wants to replace it. Um, but uh, uh, generally, you know, our algorithmic code, we, you know, when we attack an area, we do it in a very, you know, complete way. And, you know, the replacement time is probably 20 to 25 years um, for the sort of algorithmic you know, when it's, you know, there's there's development in algorithms that lets us do things more, but but in terms of the actual code base, um, it's it's surprisingly well, not surprisingly. I mean, we just, you know, we we make an effort to get it right, and you know, that's the. I mean, okay, so the whole picture is a little bit more complicated because we we we, we tend to, you know, there's stuff that's a part of the core chassis of the system, and there's stuff that's kind of on the yeah. leading edge, and sometimes, you know, I've learnt over the years in terms of design, you know, how to do sort of defensive design for the leading edge. So, and, you know, some of our stuff we tag as experimental and then we don't consider ourselves, you know, uh, constrained to, to maintain that, although that's a small fraction of the functionality these days. 
how did I manage to get this more or less right and not regret too many things that were in version one? That's a good question, right? So first, the first answer to that is because I had built a system before yeah. in which I made many of the mistakes that I might have made in version one. Fair enough. And, and I, I built a system called SMP that first came out in uh, 1981, and I started a company based on that, which uh, eventually went off in different directions. But, but um, um, in that, in SMP, what I had done... So, you know, I started life as a physicist, and so I kind of was... My approach to language design is kind of, you know, a little bit like natural science. That is, you think about sort of all of the computational operations people want to do, and then you say, what are the fundamental building blocks? What are the primitives from which all this stuff can be built? And it's kind of like, go find those primitives. Like, go find the atoms and quarks or whatever that from which you can build up computation that people want. And so, you know, what I did back in the late 1970s was I really dug into, you know, what is the fundamental way we should think about computation and this kind of approach of symbolic programming and representing everything symbolically was pretty much, it's the approach that's been used for the last hundred years or so. It's not an approach that's pretty, that's gotten into most of the modern programming languages, but and it's also an approach where, so I, in SMP, I was, it's a more extreme version of symbolic programming than uh, a more language, so I got to make many of many of the most obvious mistakes in, in SMP. And by the time I was doing, you know, open language in, in 1986, 88, um, you know, the the first iteration of things I didn't, I don't think I got wrong. And I think, you know, what's happened now, it, it's, you know, when I've been doing language design for 40 years, so I, it's kind of, it, uh, uh, you know, there are lots of kinds of things where I think I've gotten pretty good at knowing when I know what I'm talking about, so to speak. Which yes, is it has it always been written in the same languages, or so in in, in Wolf language? Yeah. I mean, so so originally it was written in an extension of C. Yeah. The kernel we it was before C plus plus was really uh, useful, so we built our own object oriented extension of C um, back in 1986. Um, then uh, mostly it's still the, the the absolutely raw internal kernel code is still C, mostly C. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, a very large fraction of the code base now is written in the language itself. Yeah. Um, okay. And um, the, uh, in fact, we've been, we've had various compilers for the language. We're now working, we have been for the last five years or so, working on a very ambitious really full compiler for the language, which is very cool, actually. I mean, it really compiles down into LLVM code, and it's very, uh, it will be, it's rather spectacular, actually, because it will go from this very high-level symbolic code into something that's completely, you know, that's executable standalone and all kinds of, all kinds of cool things like that. Um, you know, what happens, the thing to understand, I mean, the most, for me, building a big language like this, you know, maintaining design consistency is kind of a, a key element because, you know, you have 5,000, 6,000 functions. Unless there's real consistency in how that works, the whole thing kind of flies apart. And when you do have consistency, spectacular things happen because you get to, you know, you think you're building out one component, but actually you can make use of all these other components. Sure. Yeah. And one of the things that's been notable to us is, in terms of algorithm development, for example, you think you're making a, I don't know, numerical integration algorithm. But actually, in doing that algorithm, you need to use graph theory and computational geometry and algebraic analysis and so on. And because for us, those things are sort of free because they're already in the language, we get to build these much fancier algorithms than we would have otherwise be able to build. And that's been... So, you know, it, it um, uh, which means we can, you know, we can end up with much more efficient... 
kinds of processing than one can do if one's like building things from scratch and so on. And how? What's the crossover between uh, the various products that Wolfram has and things like Jupyter notebooks? Well, Jupyter notebooks, I think they will say, are kind of a ripoff of our notebook yeah, technology. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're pretty lame compared to what we have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really know why. Um, you know, I think people. It's an interesting thing for us. You know, I'm a great believer. I'm a very simple-minded business person, and I kind of believe in, you know, trying to make a business where the value people get from our stuff is what pays for us to develop more stuff. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a, you know, consistent business for 32 years. It's not, you know, it's a, a modest, it's 800 employees, so it's not a huge... Um, That's actually, um, I mean, I consider that fairly large. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's almost all R&D, so yeah. it's a very little commercial operation, um, which is something that um, uh, is unusual. And, you know, we probably would be a 50 times larger company if we have focused more on right, um, more on kind of the you know let's optimize the commercial side of the business, you know it's something where a lot of stuff we've done like Wolf Alpha we've kind of given away to the world, um, and uh, you know I it's uh, uh, I don't know it's it's kind of cool that all these people use it and uh, you know I'm not sure we don't run ads on it we don't you know we don't monetize it at all actually the main website um, you know Wolf Alpha is monetized through the the enterprise version and through the APIs that we sell and things like this um, with uh, with Wolf Language we've had uh, we have a kind of open cloud where we're making that available for free and actually we're increasingly going to be making available well something developer crowd will be interested to hear the um, uh, kind of our goal is to make the language sort of free for development. Um, it's hard to figure out exactly how you slice that because, you know, if somebody's going to run, you know, the truth is people don't really want to run a giant production system off a free, you know, yeah. nobody's supporting this yeah. kind of thing. It's, it's, and, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that a lot of developer tools have looked at. I've worked with a few developer tool companies myself and this point of where do you switch the self-serve developers to an actual product and encourage them or someone above them or around them to pay for something right. to the challenge? Well, I mean, you know, we've, we're in the position where the R&D world pays for our stuff yeah. and for people within the R&D world, like at universities, most major universities have site licenses yeah. for our stuff. Yeah. So our stuff is basically free to people within those universities. And, you know, like it's bundled on the Raspberry Pi computer, yeah. so it's free to people using Raspberry Pi. You know, I think the uh, you know my goal is to have a business where basically we, you know, where the people who are getting value for what we do pay for us to go on developing stuff. And I think the um, you know it's interesting because I've been I've been very curious. You know, I, I follow a lot of open source projects. We use a lot of open source stuff. We contribute to a lot of open source projects. Uh, we are big contributors like to MXNet, which is a big neural network thing. I think we're the number three contributor last I looked to that. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's like, how should we think about modern software licensing? And um, it's, uh, you know... <laughs> my, my last interview was with uh, the, the lead of the uh, JS Foundation we were talking about. This. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's, you know, I think that the, the situation we're in is that you know, we've had a modest but successful business for a long time, and 
you know, from my point of view, the thing that we have is kind of this layer of computational intelligence, which should be ubiquitous. And, you know, because we want to make it so that, you know, when you write code, if you want to know, you know, uh, what was the average temperature in New Orleans in, in April or something, that that's just something that you can assume that you can have your program know. Or if you want to be able to do natural language understanding on some place name or something like this, or natural language understanding of some uh, date or something, that all of that stuff is just part of the language, which is what we have. Yeah. But, you know, my the thing that I see as being the, the really interesting thing that I want to have as sort of, uh, you know, part of the, the legacy of our efforts, so to speak, is, you know, if we look at the history of, of computing, it's kind of been, okay, there are the simple languages, there's operating systems, there's UIs and so on. This layer of computational intelligence, that's what we've just spent basically, well, I've spent about 40 years building. And, uh, you know, I want to make that as accessible and ubiquitous and, you uh, uh, as effectively used by people as possible. And I think that that's, uh, you know, what you can do with it is quite magic compared to what you can do with, uh, you know, a lot of other things that exist. Yeah. And, um, you know, the challenge, the, you know, the, I would love to have a, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the question of exactly how you arrange licensing so that the right things happen is an interesting question, which I think we've actually got some pretty good solutions to it. Yeah, um, and actually I'd like to, I mean, uh, yeah, let's just go down that path. So you're someone who's been in the software development industry for a while, and you've obviously seen opinions come and go on things like licensing. So artificial intelligence is not a new technology, but it's come of its age right now. Yeah, yeah. And then even, I read your blog post a couple of weeks ago with the huge title. Um, I can't remember the exact title now, but it was buzzword full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> and you've been yeah, writing so. a lot around uh, blockchain as well, which again, conceptually is not new, right. but the right. technology yeah. has come at a time where it's it's relevant. Um, and yeah, uh, I was sent a draft of one of your, your next posts as well. Oh, okay. Which I still have to work on. If I didn't have this cold, I would have been working on it. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, so it seems that the the most interesting aspect of uh, the blockchain space, especially to you, is the, the contract side. Well, yeah, because we have a language that can yeah. represent the real world, exactly, which yeah. is what you need if you're going to write a computational yeah. contract. But but you know, coming back to this, um, uh, I think you were kind of um, you know one's seen a lot of trends, you know, okay, in terms of software licensing, for example, you know, one of the problems is that enterprise software companies have a terrible habit of of just outrageously gouging their customers. And, you know, I know this from, you know, as a consumer of these things, we have been, for the last 30 years, probably, it's probably a terrible mistake, but we've been tremendously consistent with our pricing and so on. And it's been, you know, it's like, I'm not sure anybody notices, except our customers are, you know, don't get unhappy, so to speak. But it's, you know, my point of view is, and, you know, there's a lot of this, oh, the thing is free, but we're going to, you know, uh, sell all your data. Well, the thing is free, but, oh, well, if if it breaks, tough luck. Or the thing is free, but you have to spend a lot of your effort to set it up. You know, my point of view is it's, I mean, you know, my ultimate goal is to get the stuff we've built be used as broadly as it should be used, while also not 
while also doing something where I can, you know, go on consistently building this stuff, you know, for as long as I'm able. And I think also, you know, the thing to understand about what we do is because there's all this knowledge and so on built in, we also have all kinds of other licensing tentacles with other people because we're licensing their data sure. and et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's a whole fairly complicated ecosystem. Yeah, but you showed the, maps and you showed all sorts of examples yesterday. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah. They're, they're right. It's, it's a, um, you know, so I think... You know, my belief is, you know, we want to, we made a bunch of stuff free to people who are kind of sort of tourist users, so to speak, and people who are, you know, trying to build things. Uh, once people are really going into production, they actually don't want stuff to be free. They want somebody consistently or the, yeah, maintaining. Someone to be able to shout at when there's a problem. Well. Right. It's and I mean, I, I think that's, <laughs> a, you know, and I, it's actually interesting. You know, I've, I've certainly taken as an exercise for myself turning SLAs into, into computational contracts and figuring out, you know, one of my little goals, which I haven't succeeded in so far, is can we make the license agreement for our developer use of our stuff actually into a computational contract yeah. that is self-executing. And then this um, comes back to the, the smart contracts world, which is still, I interviewed yesterday the Hyperledger people and I've spoken to them before actually, and they have this concept of trying to make a smart contract uh, describable by a business person. And they're halfway there, but it's still describable yeah. by a business person. I mean, look, my... The language that in Wolfram language, one of the one of the things we've achieved is this language which can talk about things in the yeah, real world. Yeah. So, and it can also it also happens to be able to interface with IoT devices. Yeah. It happens to do machine learning, yeah. and so when you think about you know what will a computational contract look like, what well, will involve things about the real world that will involve you know measuring things from IoT devices. It will involve a bunch of things like that. And we have a great language for doing these things. How does it relate to blockchain? Well, you know, there'll be many computational contracts that have nothing to do with blockchain. Sure. That are just, but what's interesting, I think, about computational contracts is they're a, a form of computation where it's just an autonomous thing. You just say, here's this thing that I want to have happen in the yeah. world, lodge it somewhere in the computational yeah. infrastructure, and have it come to life and do its thing when it, when it thinks it's relevant, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And that's a slightly different form of computation. And so for me, you know, thinking about, you know, our technology stack where we're, you know, desktops and, you know, cloud and embedded devices and mobile and so on, autonomous computation is another use case, which is sort of interesting to think about. And, uh, you know, I think we have sort of a unique thing to contribute there. Yeah, actually, I think you're right. It's certainly a sort of missing component in that world at the moment of, uh, yeah, an aspect that people can describe and be able to use a natural language is certainly worthwhile. Actually, on that note, I mean, uh, it's as much as any programming language has always tried to be more human-readable, they often tend to be human-readable English. Is is the Wolfram language purely like English lexicon, or is it also? Uh, you can get so in, in about twenty five languages, I think these days you can get what we call code captions, which okay. is so if you um, in the cloud and on desktop, if you switch on code captions, it will give a phrase that translates every function name in a native language. And in fact, we've we've um, sort of interesting that has not been as successful as I thought it might be. Um, and the reason is used to use any English. Well, but the, the place where it's important for us is when, when it's for K through twelve kids in different countries. It's useful. I think the thing is that people. I mean, because English is really the only language I seriously speak. Um, it's not. 
you know, it, I don't have a great intuition for what this sort of switching time that people have between. I think it's useful for people. Actually, I mean, for me, it's kind of amusing because I can learn a little bit of other languages by turning on code captions, <laughs> seeing um, uh, seeing seeing other things. But but the idea of of um, uh, well, I mean, okay, so that's in terms of our wealth language, in terms of our natural language input. Um, yes, actually, we, we have a version of Wolf Mouth actually in Chinese, which is still not deployed for various stupid Chinese government issue reasons. A lot of them. We have versions actually in five languages, which will be coming out soon. Yeah. For, for, yeah. So a lot of our natural language understanding stuff will work in um, at least five other languages. Um, um, I think the. Uh, uh, the, the use of natural language understanding within the Wolfram language, not by users of the language, but by developers in the language, something I had not really anticipated, but it's super useful. I mean, like, if you want, you know, the city of New Orleans or something, you just type control equals city of New Orleans, and that natural language will get translated into a precise symbolic representation. That little dot, 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 that is the disambiguation thing that you can press. If it didn't give you the right... You know the right thing you thought it should be giving you. You press the dot, 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 and it'll show you all the other possible disambiguations for that that concept. But this idea of taking fragments of natural language and you know starting with those and then turning them into uh, precise symbolic language that turns out to be a really powerful thing. That is a very it's a very good way. I hadn't really internalized this properly until we built it. That that's a really good way to leverage natural language. I mean, you can write. Okay, so you might say, can you write code in natural language? Right? And the answer is, I think the answer is not in a very sensible way. So, you know, I had a sort of good case in point of that because I wrote this book for kids and others about Wolf language and it has exercises. And the exercises typically say, you know, they typically are a piece of English that says write a piece of code to do blah. Yeah. Right? At the beginning of the book, very easy to write the exercises. By the end of the book, it's like these exercises are really frustrating to write because... I know immediately what the Wolfram language code is that I'm trying to ask people to write. Sure. But translating that back into English is actually quite hard. Um, so, you know, I think that was kind of heartwarming for me as a language designer to see because it's like, yes, there is actually value to making a precise symbolic language that can represent these things. It's not just, you know, natural language is not sufficient. Um, and I think, you know, programming, you know, little sort of drive-by programming of the kind that people do in Wolf Malfa, that works well in natural language. Building bigger structures, you're going to get little pieces in natural language, but the full thing is is uh, really a structured language is what you need. And I think, uh, you know, the, this whole process of uh, designing a language, so one of my goals is to make it a language that helps people think about things computationally. And I've noticed that when people know Wolfram language well, uh, one thing that's always fun for is, uh, you know, when you're fluent in Wolfram language, people can, it's very obvious, people are starting to type before they could verbally express what it is they're actually going to. Right. But, I mean, they're, they're just, one is fluently thinking in the language, and what ends up happening is there are lots of ways of thinking about things which are very clean and efficient and which one learns from structuring things in the symbolic language so there are things where you know I could say you know I, I think about well in fact for a lot of 
when we're designing stuff, it's always, you know, oh, there's this big piece of functionality. Okay, what's actually going to be the function that represents this? And how does that relate to the, you know, the existing structures that we have? And then sort of, there, there's, uh, it's hard to describe this, I suppose, but it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, the goal is to have a language in which, you know, it actually helps you to think about kind of the computational yeah. process yeah. to have that language yeah. as a medium to think in. Yeah, and the inputs into the next step and things like that. That was sort of something you were demoing very much on the fly yesterday. Yes, yes, piping. right. There's the concept of pipes in many languages, but thinking of it in a more, more natural language way helps you understand how those things are like. Yeah, you know, I mean, for us, you know, it's a functional language. So one thing about symbolic languages is of which there are almost none in in the real world, so to speak, of, except for ours. Um, they, uh, you know, one feature of our symbolic language is any code fragment is meaningful. So you don't have to have a harness of other stuff because it takes symbolic input, it generates symbolic output. So at any stage, there's always a meaningful construct that you can produce. And it's, it's somehow... The other thing that's important about symbolic stuff is that anything can be represented. And this is the thing that, again, when I started designing Wolf Language a long time ago, you know, I thought sort of symbolic expressions were a good foundation for building things. But I had not, you know, every few years I understand. So, you know, there came this moment when I realized, okay, documents can be represented as symbolic expressions. User interfaces can be represented as symbolic expressions. Uh, lumps of computation in the cloud can be represented as, as, as symbolic expressions. Uh, you know, contracts can be represented as symbolic yeah. expressions. All these things where, and once you do that, you have this whole wealth of functionality that just operates on symbolic expressions that you can then immediately make use of. And that's kind of where a lot of the power that we end up having comes from, is everything is a symbolic expression, and everything that's been built for any symbolic expression can work on your particular symbolic expression. Now, you know, as a process of language design, you know, there's a whole, we have a whole effort called our little language completeness and consistency you know, initiative, which is basically when we add a thing, where are all the tentacles that it have to connect to? And then you have a big release coming up pretty soon, or it's just happened, or...? Oh, we always we have releases every, you know, Wolfram Alpha, there's a new release every week. Uh, for Wolfram Language, it's about every three months that we have an incremental release. Our incremental releases have become absurdly large. Um, and, uh, um, we have version 12 coming up probably this summer, which is, um, I mean, well, it's interesting that, that, you know, we've got this whole, because we have this kind of well-structured language, sort of incremental delivery of functionality is rather easy. What we've tended to do is to have the, the point one releases be uh, sort of everything the R&D pipeline has brought out and then the integer releases our kind of goal is to be able to tie in a bow areas of functionality even though the the component parts were already available um, but but, uh, right that's that's, yeah I mean so for example if you you know we've been doing live one of the things I've done last few months actually is uh, you know we don't really have direct competitors I mean I suppose that you know well 
the Jupiter people took 28 years to 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 understand our notebook technology, um, and uh, I mean, I was sort of amazed that that people are like uh, that took 28 years for people to cotton on to our notebook technology, which many people have been using for a very long time. But, but anyway, we don't you know we don't really have direct competitors, and so for me, it's kind of like we might as well you know I think the intellectual process of designing our language is pretty interesting. So I thought a few months ago we'll just start live streaming this stuff, and so it's been um, it's been it's interesting. I mean, I you know a bunch of people kind of tune in, make you know there's some interesting suggestions that come out. Um, you know they they get triage. You know, I'm you know because my goal is to actually do these meetings and get through our design process. But you know when there are suggestions, somebody is triaging these things and sending me the interesting ones. Um, and I think uh, that's been. I mean, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody's probably ever seen, you know, that kind of uh, language design process happening in real time. I don't know any other place where where you'd ever see that. I mean, I you know, and it's it's perhaps a little. I mean, for me, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. So the thing that of course happens, it's never perfectly smooth. I mean, you know, it's hard. It's difficult stuff. It's the most difficult. You know, language design. Is the most difficult intellectual thing yeah. I do. A long time. <laughs> yeah, well, human languages. You know, as a designer of computer languages, it's a human languages evolve. Computer yeah. languages are built and designed. Yeah, and, um, I mean, they get tweaked and changed. But, yeah, well, yeah, maybe they. I mean, not not ours. Ours is uh, um, you know ours is and. It's an interesting responsibility because you're defining how people should think about things, um, and uh, you know I think it's a it's a um, it's also something where you know I see it as being kind of the the uh, you know in the world of you know we're building a lot of automation which is kind of like you know AI type stuff, and it's a question of how do we then express what humans actually want all this AI to do. Um, and so what are, I mean, over the next couple of small or large releases, what are the uh, newer uh, semantics and features that people can look forward to? That is an interesting question. Let me think. What's coming in version 12? Well, okay, so here's an example of something. Uh, so we have a product... Uh, called System Modeler, which is used by systems engineering people to design things like jet engines and so on, which are kind of complicated objects. Um, and uh, so one thing we've been doing for the last five years, basically, that that product was, a, was originally a company that used our technology stack to build the System Modeler product, and we bought that company, and we've been kind of integrating their technology into our core technology stack. And so one of the things that's, that's come in sort of preliminary form but is coming in full form is uh, for, I think there are like 10,000, initially 10,000 kinds of objects like, you know, uh, thermostats or, um, you know, electric motors or whatever else, which are now representable in our language. So you can say, here's this object that is basically, uh, uh, you know, the schematics for a washing machine or something, and here it's the representation in our language, and we can then treat that as a lump of computational work. Yeah. You can then say, what does this washing machine do if blah, blah, blah. And it's great for automating through AI, for simulating 
Well, it's, a, it's for simulating devices, engineering devices. So it's just one, something you might not expect. But that's another thing where we have a symbolic representation now for, you know, a washing machine, for example, for what it does. That's one, one area. I mean, another, um, another big area is our compiler technology and a very fancy... Um, uh, you know, our language is a typeless language um, in the sense that it, uh, but we have a uh, type analysis is useful for a bunch of purposes and we will be exposing a very elaborate type system um, that uh, uh, makes use of kind of modern modern symbolic ideas about types. So, I mean, it, most people who use our language won't see it, but if you want to analyze things in that way, the, I think the... Um, uh, we've been building out our machine learning stack a lot uh, and uh, we've really achieved a high degree of automation in doing machine learning and where that's being extended to uh, oh like for example uh, audio you know sequences of audio and things a bunch of stuff with audio is coming oh, really? a bunch of I mean we've already got a bunch of stuff with audio but we'll we'll have sort of like transcripting of it or yeah we're we're going to have voice to text stuff um, and speaker recognition and all those kinds of good things that's actually super interesting I, when I was in Israel last year and I saw a very very small company that had an interesting demo or something like this from meetings like uh, extracting to-dos and things from yes yeah right stuff, which was quite interesting <laughs> um, other things we have um, well there's a lot of deployability kinds of things which are in sort of continuous development but but one area there's this thing we call Wolfram Script, which is basically the command line access. Um, and uh, we have these uh, client libraries for languages like Java and Python and so on. And one thing that I think is sort of interesting there is really being able to make use of Wolfram language just like a giant Python library or something. So you dependency on something else. That was actually something I was thinking of when you were describing aspects earlier how to pull in the services into Yeah, right. So so you can use it in you can instantly use it in the cloud. Yeah. You or you can have a local engine which you've installed and use the local engine in your in your software stack. And that's uh, that's another thing that's coming. Let me see what else is coming. I mean, there are other things we've been doing a big build out of computational chemistry, which is perhaps a more specialized thing. But, but um, uh, in, um, uh, it's kind of like how do you represent a molecule symbolically? Um, this is a big. I've met uh, a lot, actually in Europe, especially, and a lot of startups doing. Um, Chemical modeling, pharmaceuticals, things like that. It's actually a very big space. There's a lot of companies. Well, it's a it's a space that came and went, and uh, now maybe it'll come back again. I think it is coming back. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think yeah. what we're, you know, what we're able to do is very flexible and rather powerful, and it's basically. Here's a representation of a molecule. Now compute features of this molecule. Uh, we're not doing giant proteins because that takes a giant computer to do it. And um, uh, we're doing somewhat smaller molecules as things where we can compute all their properties. Um, but I think it will be. I mean, again, I you know it's always hard to. For me, you know, build something like this, and once you have it more or less built, you start to really understand what the power of it is. Um, and uh, let's see what else. So we're building this particular developments to developers. Um, 
uh, well, I think a lot of stuff to do with deployability and, um, uh, you know, integrating with them. Um, I mean, we've been doing... Uh, um, well, some of these blockchain integrations are kind of interesting. Um, to keep an eye on those, it's certainly the yeah the the combination of the the uh, computational contract plus the artificial intelligence plus the kind of transaction to transaction is one of those very interesting aspects of blockchain, like machines talking to machines and exchanging yeah, right. currency between each other. Well, I think that it's one of the things that's about. important in computational contracts is. Things which were human judgment calls yeah. that can be turned into machine learning yeah. calls. Yeah. That is, you know, yeah. is this really a, um, uh, I don't know, how bad is my cold? You know, if you can observe my various symptoms, yeah. you know, make a distinction. Is it, is it a, I don't know what the medical classification, you know, what ICD-10 classification code should it be for my, my cold or whatever? Or, um, or you know, is this piece of fruit really ripe? You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think um, um, anyway. So uh, it sounds like a, a lot of interesting things for many different people in many different spaces. I have one final question. Yeah, sure. So sort of after talking about all these fairly advanced things, this is actually a question from someone who wanted to be asked, which takes it probably down a notch in this. It's specifically said around Wolfram Alpha, but it, it could be in one of the other products as well, although they're probably so potentially complex that maybe it's hard to answer. What's your, uh, your favourite query? <laughs> you know, a query, there's a party trick query, which is kind of fun in Wolfram yeah. Alpha, which is you type in somebody's name and uh, you, here, we'll, we'll do it just to see what um, um, the... See, I'm... Um, the uh, let's type in. Let's just try typing in Chris here. Um, and let's see. Now this is U.S. births because we're in the U.S. But this is saying that the most common age for a person—that's the distribution of people named Chris. In the, right. In the most common age is 49 years. So the the party trick that's that's often fun is you type in somebody's name, and just because of the way probabilities work, and because these distributions can can be quite heavily peaked, it's uh, surprisingly common that. Um, the, the age you'll get out is actually their age. I'm a little bit younger than that. Fair enough. The, it's, uh, no, as a matter of fact, I just noticed a couple of weeks ago that, that my name, of course, I was born in England, so this yeah. data isn't really... really it's, um, uh, and the UK doesn't have such well-organized data, unfortunately. But um, the uh, I am, uh, for once, I am actually the age that is the most common age, for, for, which is 58. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, but you see, you know, like you can see, like with Stephen here, there were multiple peaks, which is presumably people. Um, really fall off now. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's all gone now. There won't be any of those. And um, uh, you know, and if you pick a name, uh, I don't know. Do you have children? What? What? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah. Uh, I have got children. His name is also Christopher. That's um, Matilda is it? I think they've got old-fashioned names. <laughs> so, right, let's see what that says for. Oh, oh, wow! <laughs> but it's had a resurgence, and in, in, um, uh, it was it was really big in the 1880s. Okay, the most common age for a Matilda is two years. Close. She is uh, about eight or nine. So yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so the parents were ahead of the curve. Yeah. So. <laughs> a way of uh, naming your child. So like. What's, what needs a revival? <laughs> yes, 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 right. What's, um, uh, you know, you have to be careful. I, I, you know, I have four children and I, I, one of my theories of child naming is, you know, the name Kermit was a really good name yeah. until there was a frog by that. No, it's, it's a, uh, of course, the thing that always is amusing about names sometimes is that people will have a certain name and then you'll discover that they have a, a name and they are like, you know, somebody will be called green and it will turn out that they're a plant biologist. Yeah. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's on the other day? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, this happens me often, actually. So, <laughs> it's, and, you know, it's so coincidental that you are named after a, a, a computer potential language. You know, it's a very strange coincidence. Yes, yes, right, 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 right. Well, that's a, you know, that, that's, I'll tell you, this whole business about what should you, you know, I I struggled for a long time, actually, about what to call Wolf language and whether to, uh, and eventually, you know, everybody inside our company had called it Wolf language for ages, and it's just like, what the heck? And I, you know, when I was naming our company, well, you know, it's, although one of the interesting things with Wolf Alpha, this is an interesting observation, which I never expected, okay? So I go around, I give talks at, you know, schools, and things like that. And so I run into a bunch of kids, right? And they use Wolf Alpha pretty much. You know, it's very almost universally used among uh, high school students and college students and so on. And they'll meet me, they'll see my name, and they'll say, are you related to this Wolf Alpha thing that we use? Say, so, yeah, you know, that's my thing. And they're like, there's this moment where there's some kind of, uh, uh, you know, reset that happens when they realize, oh my gosh, you know, this software that we use somebody actually built that stuff. Um, People don't, I think the typical person doesn't realize that there's actual, you know, some human has to figure out this is something that can be built and and go and build it. But I think it's also the thing that, um, the thing that's always nice about naming stuff with with people's names and so on is, doesn't mean anything. You know, I remember years ago, I was, uh, uh, you know, I've seen too many companies where they, they gave a name that was like I was a consultant for a while for a company called Thinking Machines Corporation um, which actually I had a little input in in the naming of that company which I thought was a really cool name except when it decided it wasn't an AI company and wanted to build supercomputers instead it was a really bad name Um, and, and I think you know what happened for us is the name Mathematica which you know I knew perfectly well at the beginning was too restrictive a name for the product that we had but mathematics was its sort of first killer app and actually I sort of blame Steve Jobs for encouraging me to actually use the name Mathematica for 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 our product um, and at the beginning it was a good name because people could immediately understand what the point was and it was also that was before the web when there wasn't you know when it wasn't as easy to understand what was going on 
but over the over the course of time you know it's just like I am so fed up with people saying you know uh, oh you know we uh, you know I don't do math so I don't need to use this thing it's like well math is only some small fraction of what it does um, and I think with with Wolfram language or uh, you know the, the, the only thing that's happened with that right now is people hear the word language and they think oh it's like Python or something yeah. and, and that's um, and you know we thought about calling it sort of a hyper language or something which is perhaps a, but I think the correct intellectual description is language yeah. and so that's what I you know that's what I use language to bring it back to what language actually well yes and I mean language human language is, is has lots of knowledge built into it which is what um, you know if it was a pure if all we talked about was you know if we were pure speakers of propositional logic or something it'd be a different story but that's not what you know what language as, as, as we, we humans use it has, has, um, has ended up being and that was my interview with Stephen Wolfram at Collision Conference if you have enjoyed the show you can find previous episodes at gregariusmammal.com slash podcast support the show at slash support and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gregariusmammal and you can find me personally on Twitter at Chris Chinch. <laughs>